Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Merry Christmas. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11, starting in verse 1. But before we turn there, let me pray for us just to open the service, and then we will jump into the text. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, and we just ask that you would send the Spirit, and he would encourage our hearts as we read this text and apply it to our lives. I pray for those that uh, are hurting as we go into this Christmas season, for those who've lost loved ones or those who uh, this is just a difficult time. I pray that you would just be especially gracious to them and encourage them and help them. And so we thank you. We ask for your blessing, and we thank you for this text. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been with us, we have been in the book of Proverbs, and next week we're going to be finishing our little series in the book of Proverbs, and then as Jeff said, in the spring, we're going to start the book of Romans. Romans is kind of like the diamond of the ring that is the New Testament, so that should be a lot of fun, so we encourage you to join us. But today, because it's Christmas Eve, we're going to be doing a little promise fulfillment. This morning, we're going to talk about this prophecy out of Isaiah, and then tonight, Jeff is going to talk about the fulfillment of this prophecy out of Hebrews. So we encourage you to join us again tonight at 5 o'clock, if you can make it. But before we get into this text, because it's Christmas Eve, I need to dismantle some what I call Christmas myths, all right? What are Christmas myths? The Bible teaches something about the birth of Christ. But sometimes what happens is that story kind of gets mixed uh, into some cultural assumptions and some weird things. And so I'm going to go through several Christmas myths and dismantle these. And my hope, though, is that this doesn't ruin Christmas for you, okay? I don't want to be the Grinch. I hope that all your hope was not put in the fact that there were only three wise men or something like that. But let's go through these Christmas myths just to start out because it's Christmas Eve before we get into the text. Sound good? Yeah, okay. Perfect. Someone's ready. Someone's ready for Christmas. So, Okay, so a few Christmas myths for you. First of all, Jesus most likely was not born in the winter, (gasps) right? We have historical record that shepherds in this area in this time period would actually start penning up their sheep around November, okay? So to have shepherds in the middle of the night when it's freezing, which it does get really cold in, uh, in Israel, would be a very odd thing to see indeed. And so most scholars actually think that Jesus was probably born sometime in the spring. Again, I hope that doesn't ruin Christmas for you, all right? There you go. Here's another one. How many wise men does the Bible say that there were? It doesn't, all right? It doesn't say that there were three. Three's not a bad guess. The reason a lot of people think that there were three wise men or three magi is because there were three gifts that were brought, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But by that logic, if you have nine presents under your Christmas tree, that doesn't mean you have nine parents. It's not that uh, only one person can bring one gift. We don't know how many magi there were. The text doesn't tell us. Now, the Greek word magoi is in the plural, so we know this. There's more than one. But other than that, we don't know. We have some records even from the Middle Ages that list as many as 12. So we have no idea how many wise men there were. We know that there were wise men. We know that there was at least two. But beyond that, the text doesn't tell us how many there were. All right? Here's another one. You ready? I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to keep ruining Christmas for you. Were the Magi there biblically the night Jesus was born? They were not, according to the biblical text. Yes, I've said it. Every nativity scene you've ever seen has gotten it wrong, okay? So when you're driving and you're looking at Christmas lights and there's Frosty the snowman bowing down to the baby Jesus, not only was Frosty not there, but the wise men were not there either, okay? Do you know why? Because it takes time to travel, It's not as though they see a star arise, and they're over in Syria or Persia, and all of a sudden, and they could just teleport, and they're there now to see the baby Jesus. They have to travel. It takes a long time. When they come, they find Jesus, who's called a child at that point, not a baby. They come to a house, not a manger, and when they talk to Herod, Herod kills all the babies, wants to kill all the babies that are two years old and under. Why two years old and under? Why not just say, kill all the babies that were born tonight? 
it's because they actually come sometime later. So, if you invite me over to your house at Christmas and you have a nativity scene, I will take those wise men and I will move them across your room because they are traveling, okay? And you will never have me back again for Christmas, but you'll be more biblical. The next one, Mary. How old do you think Mary was when she gave birth to Christ? See, pretty young. Yeah, pretty young. So we have a tendency when we think of Mary to think of a woman maybe like in her mid-30s, if you've seen some sort of Christmas play or Christmas movie. Women at this time in Israel that were Jewish were married typically between the ages of 13 and 16. Now, here's the reason I tell you this. I think that if you understand that she is a teenage girl, I think you better understand what it's like for her in this. She is a scared teenage girl that people are accusing of adultery when she hasn't committed adultery. But she would have been young. She would have been afraid, all right? She would have been a teenager. Another Christmas myth. You ever heard the phrase Xmas stand in for Christmas? Xmas? Xmas is not a bad thing, okay? It doesn't take the Christ out of Christmas or anything like that. Where do we get the idea of Xmas? Well, the Greek word for Christ is Christos. And in Greek, the first letter of the word Christos looks like an X. It's called a he, sometimes mispronounced as a chi, and it looks like a big X. And so Xmas just means Christmas, okay? So nothing bad, nothing evil. The letter X doesn't belong to the devil or anything like that, but that's where we get the letter X for Xmas. Here's another one. The star that the Magi are following is probably no ordinary star, okay? There are scientists and astronomers who've tried to go back 2,000 years in their charts and figure out what was going on, uh, you know, astrologically uh, 2,000 years ago, and was there a supernova or were the planets in alignment or something like that, and all those attempts are vain because there's probably something miraculous going on here. In Jewish thinking, stars are often equated with angels. Angels are called heavenly hosts. Stars are called heavenly hosts. And so the idea here is that these magi are probably following something miraculous, not just a natural phenomenon. Okay? You know this not only because that's the way that Jews think about stars from several places in the Old Testament, but you also know this because, how helpful is this? If I say, I would like you to come over to my house tonight, and you say, great, where do you live? And I say, I live under that star. Are you going to be able to find it? You're going to be like, uh, 21, okay. All the houses are under the star, right? How do you find one place with a star? Because there's something going on miraculous with the, the whole thing with the star in the birth of Christ. And then lastly, this is really important, you need to realize, in Christmas, Christmas is not the beginning of the Son of God. It's not the beginning of uh, the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God. God has always existed. The Son of God has always existed. God has always been a Trinity, okay? So it's not as though God just all of a sudden has the Son of God on Christmas or something like that. On Christmas, what we celebrate is the incarnation, where the Son of God, who's always been God, now takes on a second nature. The biblical view of Jesus is that he's one person with two distinct natures, that he is truly and fully God, and he is also truly and fully man. So it is right to say Jesus was born on Christmas. That's a good sentence. But you don't want to think then that there was no Son of God, second person of the Trinity before that, okay? So just keep that in mind. Everybody good on those things? Still love Christmas? I do. All right, I'm like elf when it's Christmas time. I'm like screaming about Santa and these kind of things. I love it, all right? I love it. Well, we're going to get here into Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage that I'm going to show you links to Christmas, but before we do, I have to show you a little slide. I've got to set some cultural expectations of what Jews were thinking about thousands and thousands of years ago as this passage was written, so we're going to throw it up on the screen. We have an image. There it is right there. Okay. 
Let me explain this to you before we get into this text. If you are a Jew living in Isaiah's day, you believe that the world history will be played out in two different eras, in two different epics, in two different ages, okay? If you're a Jew in Isaiah's day, you believe that you live in what is called the present evil age. You hear that language in Scripture a lot, the present evil age, or the devil's called the ruler of this age, and these kind of things. So if you're a Jew living in Isaiah's day, you believe that you live in what is called the present evil age, and the present evil age is marked by the effects of the fall. What happened when Adam and Eve, i.e. mankind, rebelled against God? And the answer is everything became broken. Zach, if God exists, then why is there so much evil in the world? Because we rejected him. The problem is not with God, it's with us. And so what happens is if you're in Isaiah's day, you look around and you see things of the present evil age. You see death. You see sickness. You see oppression from your enemies. There's sin, which is why you're having to do all these sacrifices and stuff all the time. Uh, Damnation awaits you if you don't know Yahweh. There's idolatry and all these bad things. But if you're a Jew in Isaiah's day, you have a hope according to places like Isaiah, according to places like Daniel, according to places like Ezekiel, that promises that one day you're going to live in a new age. This new age is what is called the age to come in Jewish thinking, the age to come, okay? It's also called the kingdom of God. What does Jesus preach about more than anything else? The answer is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a man who had two sons. The kingdom of God is like a field, etc., etc. What does he mean? Well, the kingdom of God is the idea that though you live in the present evil age, one day a Messiah would come, and when the Messiah would come, he is going to reestablish the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Because God's always ruled and reigned. Even when there's sin in the world, God is sovereign over that. So what do we mean by kingdom of God? Here's what we mean by that. What would the world look like if there were no effects of the fall, there was no more sin, and nobody opposed God? No demons opposed God. No humans opposed God. There was no opposition to God's reign. What would it look like? And here's the answer. It would look like the Garden of Eden. So keep this in mind, all right? Keep this image in mind. As we read Isaiah 11, you're going to see us go from the present evil age to the kingdom of God slash age to come. So if you're a Jew, you believe that you live in the present evil age, but one day God's going to send a Messiah, and when he comes, there'll be a hard break, and everything will be perfect. That's the Jewish expectation. That's not exactly right, but that's the expectation. Everybody with me so far? Okay, that's a lot of theology and a lot of me making fun of Christmas stuff. So let's everybody take a big breath and relax. Now let's get into the text. Let's get into verse 1 with that in mind. Verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What on earth does that mean? Well, in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, Israel is seen as like this proud forest, all right, that exalts itself. It doesn't need God. It's great on its own. And, Isaiah, or, and uh, Israel exalts itself in Isaiah 6. And so you know what God does? He cuts them down. He cuts them down. In Isaiah 10, Assyria exalts itself as a proud forest, and so God cuts them down, okay? So there's a lot of lumberjack imagery going on here in Isaiah And so this passage starts by saying, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Here's what it's saying. Though you, Israel, have been made low. At this point, the kingdom of Israel is divided. They've had evil leaders like Ahaz and these kind of people that have made the kingdom not like it should be. God sends a promise. Though you've been judged for your sin, God's last word for you is not divorce. That's what he's saying. Notice that they haven't been uprooted. There's still a stump. They've been cut down, but the roots have not been dug up. There's a promise that there's going to come one who's going to help. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? 
Like, other than the uncle from Full House. Who's Jesse? Yes, he is the dad of David. He's the father of David. In the Old Testament, you've got this guy named David, and he's kind of the prototypical king. He's one that God comes to and says that you will never fail to have a man on the throne, that one day I'm going to send King David Jr., and he's going to do to the whole world what you have done with Israel, which is to make my name great. And so there's this promise of this king, right? So imagine being in Isaiah's day, you live in the present evil age, you know that the world is broken, but there's this promise that God has not done with uh, Israel. There's this promise that he's going to send a Messiah through Judah, and he's going to send a Messiah through King David. And it says this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Unlike unfaithful Israel, this branch who's coming will bear fruit. We just sang it. Oh, come thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. That's what it's talking about. It's a reference to Isaiah 11. Now, I need to say something about baseball. By the way, if you think baseball is the best sport, go ahead and raise your hand. That's okay. Okay. Anybody that didn't raise your hand, you're just wrong. Okay. Baseball is the best sport. It's the best sport. I love it. Baseball. Okay. Now, I need to tell you something about baseball. So, who was the first African-American to get to play professional baseball in the modern era? Do you know his name? Jackie Robinson. That's right. Jackie Robinson, number 42, was the first one who got to play professional baseball as an African-American in the modern era. He played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Okay? Today, they're the Los Angeles Dodgers. What is a Dodger? Originally, the team name was the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers, because if you lived in Brooklyn, you'd have to avoid these trolleys in the street. And someone thought that would be an excellent name for a baseball mascot. So it was the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers, then it became the Dodgers, then it moved to Los Angeles, so now it makes no sense, but that's another story. So the guy that signed Jackie Robinson to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers, his name was Branch Rickey. Branch Rickey. Wesley Branch Rickey. Do you know why he signed Jackie Robinson when nobody else would? It was because of his Christian faith. He was a devout Methodist, and he knew that he'd have to stand before God and give an account for everything that he'd done. And he didn't want to have to explain to God why he wouldn't let a black person play professional baseball. So that was his reasoning for signing Jackie Robinson. And his name is Wesley Branch Rickey. He was named after this passage here. That doesn't have anything to do with the text. I just like baseball. There's a baseball fact. The word branch is here. The word branch is his name. So let's just go on to verse 2. Verse 2. What will this branch be like? And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This text is saying that this branch will be inspired by the very spirit of God. Okay. In the Old Testament, there's this idea of anointing. You ever heard the name anoint or the word anointing? What you would do in the Old Testament is you would take a flask or a horn of oil and you would pour it on somebody's head And what you were doing by doing that action is you were asking the Holy Spirit to come and empower that person for whatever ministry God had called them to, all right? So the kind of people that are anointed in the Old Testament are people like prophets, people like priests, people like kings. Jesus happens to be all of those. Jesus' baptism, actually, in his ministry is his anointing, all right? You'll notice Jesus does no miracles before his baptism. His baptism is when he starts his ministry. That's his anointing. He comes out of the water. The Spirit lights on him like a dove. The Father says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, and he begins his ministry. Salvation is a Trinitarian event, and this text is saying is that one will come inspired by the very Spirit of God. Let me ask you this question. If you were Jesus and you got a chance to read any passage in the Old Testament about yourself, what passage would you read? Would you read Psalm 2 about a coming king? 
Would you read Isaiah 53 about being pierced for the sins of the world? Here's the passage Jesus reads, and as I read it, see if it looks anything like Isaiah 11. Ready? This comes out of Luke 4, 18 through 21. All right? It says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. There it is. Because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So the one passage Jesus wants to point to when he reads to the synagogue is he says this, you know the Old Testament, how it talked about a spirit-inspired Messiah who is going to come to bring us into the age to come, to bring the kingdom of God? That's me. And then he does like a mic drop and sits back and sits down and everybody stares at him, all right? It's awesome. It's a powerful image. He'll be inspired by the very spirit of God, all right? Verse 3a, verse 3a, first part here. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Here's what this means. Jesus will obey God's commands where we have failed, but he will do so with a sense of joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. God will not, or Jesus will not follow God's commands the same way I follow a speed limit sign. Okay? One, do you think I go the speed limit? Answer, sometimes. It should be all the time. Romans 13, but the answer is sometimes. And when I do go the speed limit, I hate it the whole time. If it's 35, I will go 39, and I will hate it the whole time, okay? That's not how Jesus will follow these commands, that for the joy set before him, he'll do that. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Verses 3b through 4a, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. What does it mean here by saying Jesus will not use his eyes or ears to judge, okay? It doesn't mean that Jesus is walking around like this, and somebody comes up to them, and they're like, Jesus, what should I do? And he's like, shh, I'm discerning, all right? That's not the point. The idea is that he will not use merely human judgment. We have imperfect justice as humans, right? We, uh, there, we, people take bribes. People are biased. People uh, have false presuppositions. What it's saying is that his justice his judgment will be perfectly truthful, perfectly truthful. I'll tell you a little story. Uh, I got a chance to visit New York City a few years ago, and I'm from the South, and so I will say this about New York City. It is a great place to visit, but I would not want to live there, okay? There's about an 80% chance you'd get stabbed, and the people are super mean, okay? But other than that, it's a beautiful city, beautiful city. So I got a chance to go up to visit New York City because we were actually visiting a, uh, a church up there. And, uh, and the trip was awesome. We got to see a lot of cool sights. We got to go to the memorial for the World Trade Center uh, and all these kind of things. But the one thing that I did not like about the trip is that we had four guys that had to share one hotel room with two, not queen-sized, but full-size beds, okay? So you're laying there in bed, and all of a sudden, like a cold foot bumps against your leg, and you think, oh, that's probably just my wife. And then it hits you. My wife is in Texas. That is a man, right? It's awful, okay? Or you're laying there in bed, and you're like, I'm tired of laying on this side. So you turn over to the other side and open your eyes, and there's some guy staring at you. And so you just roll back over, because it's better to be uncomfortable this way, all right? But other than that, the trip was great. And one of the things you'll see if you walk around New York City is there's an image that's on top of all the courthouses and law buildings and stuff in New York City. 
It is the image of who's called Lady Justice, okay? Lady Justice. She's actually on the state seal of New York as well. Not Lady Liberty. Lady Liberty is the lady that is in the harbor, right? The Statue of Liberty. There's two virtuous ladies in New York City. That's it, just two. Lady Liberty and Lady Justice, okay? And Lady Justice has several things that are interesting about her. In one hand, she has scales, right? And what does she have over her eyes? She has a blindfold. Why? Because she does not judge by what her eyes see or by what her ears hear. She doesn't care about your wealth. She doesn't care about your race or your gender or your background. She doesn't care about any of that. She doesn't care. You can't bribe her. The only thing she cares about are those scales and which way they tip. And if they don't tip in your favor, what's in her other hand? A sword because she brings swift justice. That's the image here, that his justice will be perfect We won't have perfect justice in this life. The same people that got us into this problem will not be the same people that got us out of it. But rather, a Messiah who is going to come, and what He is going to do is bring perfect equity and perfect justice, like Lady Liberty. And like Lady Liberty, He has a sword. I'm sorry, like Lady Justice. And like Lady Justice, He has a sword. Look at verse 4b. And He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips He shall kill the wicked. There's this image in the book of Revelation. By the way, there's no S at the end of the word Revelation, all right? There's this image in the book of Revelation where Jesus has a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, okay? What does that passage mean? It does not mean that Jesus vomits a sword. That's not the point. The point is is that he does, though, literally judge with his word, and that's what this text is talking about. That Jesus not only will come to bring fairness, but where he needs to mete out recompense, he will do so, and he will judge with his word. Have I given you my speech on how God is like a police officer and not like a fireman? I don't think so. I'm going to give you that speech now, okay? Let me ask this question. Let's do another poll. If you've ever been pulled over by a police officer, raise your hand. Oh, yeah, I'm not the only one speeding, okay? If you've ever been pulled over by a red fire engine, raise your hand. Okay, maybe one person probably committing some serious crimes to get pulled over by a firefighter, okay? Now, here's why God is more like a police officer than a firefighter. Uh, The job of a firefighter is to bring the love. It's just their job to bring the love. If you get in a wreck, they're there. If your house burns down, they're there. That's not bad. That's their job. They're great at it. Thank God for firefighters. We would all be dead without them, okay? But police officers bring both the love and the justice, They bring love and the justice. When somebody's banging on your door at 2 in the morning, you're glad when the police show up. Why? Because they're bringing the love. They're there to protect you, okay? When there's an active shooter scenario in a school and the SWAT team is called in, you're glad when the police show up because they are bringing the love. They're there to protect. But when you're going 106 in a school zone and you get pulled over, now all of a sudden you don't like it. Why? Because they also bring the justice, okay? This Messiah is going to bring the love, but He will also bring the justice. He will do both. That's what verses 4 and 5 together are saying. Look at verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. His actions will be so characterized by perfection and righteousness that it is like he's wearing those qualities. Let me say it stronger. You put on pants, Jesus puts on righteousness. Those are different levels. Anybody put on righteousness this morning? No, because you're not the Messiah. But when the Messiah comes, this text is saying his actions will be so righteous, it's like it's just falling off of him. He wears what you strive for. That's what verse 5 is saying. And then now look at verse 6 through 9a. These are some of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. 
The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. By the way, the Bible never says that the lion will lay down with the lamb. That's another one of those kind of myths we have. It says that the wolf will. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Now look at verse 8, because if you're a parent, this will give you a heart attack. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. An adder's a poisonous snake. Verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. This text is saying, though you live in the present evil age, when this Messiah comes, he's going to bring in so much peace that it is shocking. The Texas fans and OU fans and Aggie fans will all join hands and worship together, right? That they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and their hands will learn war no more. That's the imagery here. That no longer does the lamb have to fear the wolf, no longer does the cow have to fear the bear, no longer does uh, the person have to fear the snake, that there will be that much peace that's shocking. You don't see that in Isaiah's day. First, uh, first church I ever pastored was out in the middle of nowhere, all right, out in the country. It was in a community called Direct, but they pronounced it Direct because it's the country. And in the country, you emphasize the first syllable of different words. They'd say things like Detroit. They told me to watch out for a spider known as the brown recluse, okay? You emphasize the first syllable in a country context. And so I was there at this little church, and I was doing some sermon prep, and I saw these birds jumping around and making a bunch of noise out my window. This was in my house. And I looked out and saw that they were messing with a six-and-a-half-foot snake. I don't know what kind of snake it is. I'm not a snakeatologist or whatever they're called, but uh, it looked scary. It looked like it could eat my house. And so I thought, I need to destroy this snake. But I didn't have any good snake-fighting tools. I didn't have, like, a little 410 shotgun. I didn't have, like, a shovel or anything like that. The only thing that I had was an AK-47, okay? If you don't know what an AK-47 is, just watch a Bond movie, and it's the weapon that all the bad guys have, Okay? And it wasn't even my AK-47. It was Katie's, my wife. When I met Katie, she was 18. She drove a cherry red Mustang, and she had an AK-47, okay? Not like in her hands when I met her. But I probably would have proposed right then, had she. And so I took my wife's AK-47, and I went in my front lawn. That's how much in the country we were. You could drive 15 minutes either direction before you get cell phone signal. And so in my front lawn, there I am, shooting that snake. People are driving by. There's that new pastor. I'm waving, hey, right? Because there was enmity between me and the snake. And then after we killed the snake, I think we posted it on Facebook and said something like, take dominion, all right? The idea of a serpent in verse 8. Look at verse 8 again. This one's interesting. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. The idea behind serpents in the Bible is not just snakes and people. It's the devil who comes as a serpent to trick Adam and Eve. And the first promise of the gospel you get in the Bible is in Genesis 3.15, where there's a promise that that woman's seed, someone from that woman's seed is going to come who's going to crush that serpent's head. So you see, when the serpent, the devil, has been crushed, people and snakes can just go back to being people and snakes, and wolves and lambs can just go back to being wolves and lambs, etc. Imagine for a second that you have a little one-year-old, and this one-year-old starts crawling outside, Okay? And you look out your window, and that one-year-old is crawling towards a rattlesnake. How does that make you feel? Awful. Now imagine, though, that the little one-year-old crawls up to the rattlesnake and just pets it on the head. Nothing happens. The snake takes its tongue, tickles its cheek. The baby laughs, takes its rattle, moves it around. It's weird. It's shocking. 
That's how much peace this Messiah is going to bring in according to this text. Okay? Look at verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. What is God's mountain? I got a chance to go to Israel a few years ago, and uh, I wanted to see Mount Zion, because the Bible always talks about Mount Zion, how all the nations will flock to Zion, how Zion will be lifted up above the other mountains. And so I wanted to see this, what I assumed would be this huge mountain, because I'd read about it in the Bible. And you get there to Jerusalem, and they show you Mount Zion, and it's kind of just this little lump of dirt. And you think to yourself, it's kind of like that scene from uh, Dumb and Dumber where they're just driving out in the middle of nowhere. You think to yourself, I really thought the Rocky Mountains would be a lot rockier than this because that little hill is tiny. But the point of God's mountain is not the size of the hill physically. It's the size of the hill spiritually. The idea of Zion in the Bible or God's mountain here in Isaiah is that it represents all of God's promises. God promises that one day the world will look like Israel, which was to look like Jerusalem which was to look like Mount Zion, which was to look like the temple, which was to look like Eden, which was to look like heaven, which was to look like heaven. That's the promise of this, is that one day all shall know me, all shall know me, Jew and Gentile alike, okay? Look at verse 9b through 10. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, the rod of Jesse that frees us, in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Okay? Now, think back to the first thing that I said about that slide, that Jews believed thousands of years ago they lived in the present evil age. That was marked by the fall. But one day, according to the prophets in the Old Testament, they would live in an age that's known as the kingdom of God, and the the fall would be reversed. Now, I want to show you another slide of how this actually plays out. Part of their assumptions were right, but part of them were wrong. And so I want to show you a second slide that shows, and you guys can go and throw that on the screen, that shows how this actually works in the ministry of Jesus, okay? Jesus is the beginning of the end, okay, when Jesus comes with his ministry. Zach, are we in the end times? Yes, but we've been in the end times for 2,000 years because the end times is a theological category for what happens when people start getting up from the grave. So what happens when Jesus comes in his ministry is he begins bringing in the kingdom of God. He begins the reverse of the curse. That's what he's doing in his ministry. He's not just doing cool magic tricks. What he's doing is death comes as a result of the fall, so he raises the dead. Sickness comes as a result of the fall, so he heals the sick. Demons oppressing people come as a result of the fall, so he casts out demons. All right? Uh, Us breaking the law and needing our sins forgiven come from us breaking the law from our sin, from the fall. So Jesus comes and he keeps the law where we we didn't keep it. Jesus is the anti-Adam. He's the Adam that Adam should have been. We today live in this lighter part right in the middle. We live in what is called the overlap of the ages, the already, the not yet. God's kingdom, promised here in Isaiah, has already begun, but it's not completed. But it's not completed. We actually see the effects of both of these ages today. Do we see death today? Yes. But have we seen resurrection in Christ? Yes. Do we see sickness today? Yes, but we also see healing. Do we see people demonically oppressed? Yes, but we also see people freed from that in Christ. Do we see people that are in sin? Yes, but we also see forgiveness. Is there still damnation for those that don't know Christ? Yes. But is there the offer of salvation for them if they would trust Christ? Yes. And the gospel goes out to all nations. You see, we live in the overlap of the ages. We live in the most exciting time in world history to be born because the end has already begun but it is not complete yet. But it's not complete yet. I'll give you an analogy we've used here several times at Parkway. 
It's kind of like the difference in World War II between D-Day and V-Day, okay? What is D-Day? D-Day is when the Allied troops land at Normandy, and D-Day is the beginning of the end of World War II. After the Allied troops take the beaches at Normandy, the Allies are going to win. They're going to win. But is the war over yet? It's not. They still have to press on towards Berlin. So D-Day is different than V-Day. V-Day is victory day. Once the war is over, and there's champagne and confetti, and that sailor dip kisses that nurse in that famous picture that later turns out she really hated that, right? Jesus' coming is D-Day. Let me say it stronger why I'm doing this on Christmas. Christmas is D-Day. At the incarnation, the allied troops, if you will, Christ, has come to conquer Hitler and his forces, has come to conquer the devil and what is evil. The beaches of Normandy have already been taken for us as Christians. The cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is D-Day. It's the ultimate defeat against the enemy, but we're still waiting for the wolf to lie down with the lamb. That's the age in which we live. That's the age in which we live. And King Jesus offers a full pardon to anybody that will but lay down their arms of sin and trust him. And trust him. Okay, you can take that, uh, that image off there. I want to tell you a little story about my own salvation and then how it links back to the sermon. So, uh, I grew up in church, uh, but I didn't become a Christian until I was about 18. Okay, I didn't become a Christian until I was about 17 or 18. I was in church every Sunday before that, but I didn't, God didn't change my heart and save me until I was about 17 or 18. I was the kid that thought that the way that you were saved, that the way that you got to be right with God was through doing it better, all right? That's what I thought growing up. I thought that the way that one would be forgiven by Christ is if they did everything in their power and tried as hard as they could to be good, then God would love them. I was the kid that didn't drink, didn't curse, didn't sleep around, didn't do… I would pick up trash off the street because I thought God was mad at me if I didn't. That was me living up until I was about 18. And then I had some friends, some people that were actually in a community group that moved in across the street from me, and they befriended me. They were, just grand, they, were, they were grandparents. I was just a punk teenage kid at this time, and they just started loving on me. And they invited me to their church, and that's where I heard the first, it's the first place that I heard about grace. I heard about Christ. I heard about his resurrection. I heard about his cross, but the thing that I had never heard about was grace. I assumed that the way that I would be made right before God was by doing it good enough. And what I heard at that church for the first time was, it doesn't matter how good you think you are or how good you can try it. You cannot earn the salvation of God. It is a free gift given because of what Christ has done alone. That was new to me, that I not only had to repent of my sin, that I had to repent of my own righteousness, that I had to repent of hanging on to Jesus with one hand and hanging on to my own works with the other hand. And all of a sudden, God started changing my heart. I didn't know what happened to me. I'd be sitting in church singing songs I had sung my entire life, but for the first time, I actually believed them. I would go, our church had four different services on Sunday, and I would go to all four of them, hear the same sermon, hear the same music, because I could not get enough. And then I would go home to my house and sit in my room and listen to worship music and cry like a weirdo, all right? And I'm like, what is happening to me? And here's what was happening to me, conversion, regeneration. God was moving me from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And my life started to change. I was a teenage boy, and so I had some posters of women in bikinis on my, uh, in my room. And one day, I was sitting there. No one told me that was wrong. I just, I'd just become a Christian. I was sitting there on my bed, and I thought, I'm not married to her. I'm not married to her either. And so I tore them down. There was this kid at school that didn't have anything. They weren't going to get anything for Christmas. They didn't have any money. So I just took my PlayStation and gave it to him. 
And I started reading my Bible, and I started telling people about Jesus. I'm like, what is happening? That's conversion. Here's why I tell you this. What God was doing in my life is what He's already begun doing in the whole world. There's a sense in which I'm already saved, but He's also growing me, and one day I'll be glorified. In the world, the victory in Christ at the incarnation, His life, death, burial, and resurrection, it's already been won. And He's doing through Christ that with the whole world as we press on towards Berlin. So here's my question for you. Do you know and love Jesus? Not, do you think you're a Christian? Not, did you pray a prayer when you were six? Not, did you get baptized or do some religious ritual? I'm asking you this. Has God changed your life like He changed my life when I wasn't even looking for it? Where He changes your highest desires to where you love God more than anything else. That's your highest desire. Yes, you still sin, and yes, you still fail, and yes, I sin probably more than most. But is your highest desire for Jesus Salvation is not so much something you decide as much as it is something God does to you. Has He taken out your heart of stone and given you a new heart? Has He transformed you? Because here's the good news for you. If not, or if you're not sure, you can be walking out of these doors today. If you don't know Christ or you're not sure if you know Christ, what I want you to do is as we sing in a second, Tim's going to sing after we take communion, I want you to cry out to Jesus. I want you to ask Him to save you. I want you to turn from your sin. I want you to give Him your dirtiness and your messiness and your brokenness. And I want you to bow the knee and call Him Lord. And He will transform your life if you don't know Him. Because His victory has already been completed. And one day it will be finished. D-Day has already come at the incarnation. And V-Day will be here at His second coming. At His second coming. Let's pray. And if the men who are serving communion will come up to go ahead and start distributing the elements. Jesus, I thank you that you're great, and I thank you that you love us, and I thank you that one day the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and I thank you you've already begun that restoration process. I thank you that we live in between the already and the not yet, that we live in the overlap of the ages where we still see the effects of the fall, what I've been calling the present evil age, but we also see the effects of the kingdom of God, of the age to come. And so we look forward to the day where you come back and uh, where everything is perfect, where there is no more problem, where no one hurts or destroys in all your holy mountain. And so we just ask that you would be especially gracious to us, uh, to us in the meantime, uh, and please help us. We thank you for today. We thank you for your incarnation. You didn't have to do that. We sinned against you. You could have just damned us all, but instead you took on flesh. You became truly human while remaining God so that we might have life. We thank you for that. We ask all of this in your name and for your glory. Amen.